like you, I've always been curious about successful people. In season two, we'll delve further to explore passion, purpose, and peace with today's heroes. Join me as we chat with inspiring and accomplished women and men who will share their journeys and life hacks to pass the power on to you. I have Kishore Mahubani with us today, and Kishore is a major multi-hyphenate. He's a distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute at NUS, and he's enjoyed two distinct careers in diplomacy for 33 years, serving as Singapore's ambassador to the UN, not once, but twice, and in academia as founding dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. A prolific writer, Kishore has co-authored articles with esteemed leaders like Kofi Annan and Larry Summers and has written eight books, eight, eight books. books, and has written eight <laughs> books. He's a proud father, attentive husband, and friend to my family, and I'm so delighted to have Kishore here to pass the power. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me, Paige. Such a pleasure to be with you. I'd love to start with your three decades plus in mm. public policy. And did you dream of becoming a diplomat? Was it something that your parents and your childhood fostered this idea? It was the exact opposite. <laughs> I never wanted to be a diplomat. In fact, when I went to university, which was also an accident, because you know I came from a very poor family and very, I guess, a difficult background and shouldn't have gone to university. The only, and after I graduated high school, I went to work as a textile salesman for $150 a month on High Street. Then out of the blue, I got the president scholarship, which was $250 a month. So my mother said, oh, go study university. $250 a month is more than $150 a month. That's how I ended up in university. At NUS. At NUS, in Bukitima campus. And when I graduated, my dream was to become an academic. And I thought, Going into public service was, you know, wrong and not my cup of tea. So I only joined the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1971 because I was forced to do so. I was bonded and I said, well, I have no choice. And after two, three years, I tried to resign from the public service from MFA. But it's a long story. Uh, I ended up staying and then uh, progressively I began to understand that being a diplomat is an enormous privilege in life. And so that's how I ended up staying for 33 years. <laughs> so I know that much of it you spent outside of Singapore. A lot of it. Out of 33 years, I would have spent about half the time overseas. Ten and a half years in New York, two and a half years in Washington, D.C., three years in Kuala Lumpur, one year in Cambodia during the war, one year in Harvard. <laughs> so I guess about half the time overseas. Right. And do you ever have regrets that you weren't serving here in the government, making more public policy for... I had a very good taste of making public policy at home because I also serve as a permanent secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from 1994 to 1998. And as you know, that's like the CEO position of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And the advantage of being in Singapore was that every week, permanent secretaries would meet and discuss all aspects of Singapore's policies. I remember, I can tell you, this is going to shock your listeners one of the most exciting papers I read about Singapore's public policies was about Singapore's ambitions to build the deepest sewage tunnels in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's amazing. It was an amazing engineering accomplishment. So, you know, sewage is actually what kills many cities, as you know. Right. When for Singapore, ending up with probably the best sewage system in the world is quite an accomplishment. Right, sewage becomes very sexy because it helped build Singapore. So my husband says that you were so smart and outspoken 
that yeah. they wanted to send you away because if you <laughs> remained home, you might have. No, actually, uh, it was the other way around. I was very talkative. But to be fair, for a public servant, what was unusual is that I kept on writing articles and I kept on speaking publicly. And that's what normally, you know, what public servants did. And I think that's part of the reason why I was seen as a natural fit for the job as Singapore's ambassador to the United Nations, because your job is to speak and defend Singapore's policies in the most, I guess, influential multilateral arena. And it was, of course, at the same time, a big shock when I was told at the age of, what, 34, 35, that I was going to succeed uh, Tommy Cole yes. as ambassador to the UN. And I was feeling like uh, huge shoes and it was very, very difficult. It was probably one of the biggest challenges in my life. <laughs> so that made you the second ambassador to the UN? Uh, he actually, was the first. I think it was third or fourth because okay. the first one was there very briefly. Tomiko was there all together I think he started 13, in 13 years. Yeah. He was there from 68 to 71 and then 71 to 74 Professor Jai Kuma was the ambassador to the UN. Then 74 to 84 was Tomiko and I took over in 1984. Got it. Well I feel like politics has become a really tough place for anybody to exist right now. And none of us is perfect, but we're, mm. you know, public servants and politicians are expected to be. How do we steer the brightest to go into politics in the current state of the world? In Singapore, there's a kind of uh, what I would call a firewall <laughs> between the public servants and the politicians, because the public servants in Singapore, we follow the British system. You see, in the United States, you can go in and out of the public sector. Whereas in Singapore, the public servants follow the British model and it's a lifelong career. And as a public servant, you, you stay clear of politics. And so in that sense, in some ways, you're also protected. But as a politician in Singapore, then you're exposed to all the politics. And it's, of course, much harder in Singapore now to attract people into politics because it is no longer as how do you say, a safer career? Because in the year 2011, Giorgio, a minister, and Limuhiwa, a minister, uh, lost their seats. In the last elections in 2020, Ng Meng, a minister, lost his seat. So uh, politics in Singapore is going to become more challenging. But this is perfectly natural because you have a growing uh, middle class population that is politically more active and also more demanding. So, Which is good. Uh, which is very good, which is very good. But it also makes life very interesting for politicians in Singapore. <laughs> right. So how do we get the brightest people to take on the challenge? Well, so far, I would say the Singapore government is still doing a very good job. And in fact, if you look at the record, the Singapore cabinet has probably got, has more graduates from the Harvard Kennedy School serving in the Singapore cabinet than any cabinet anywhere in the world. Mm. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> You know, including the prime minister, by the way, who also studied at the Harvard Kennedy School. So the Singapore, one, one of the reasons why Singapore has been one of the most successful countries in the world has been because of the quality of mind of people sitting in the cabinet making decisions on long-term policy decisions. But some would argue that how can they relate to the heartlanders? Well, that's actually a very interesting question because you're right, traditionally, when you have people who are very highly educated and come, in a sense, 
very successful, they find it very hard to connect with the working classes. And as you, as you know, that's what's happened in the United States. And the East Coast establishment got cut off from the working classes because what Angus Deaton called a sea of despair among the white working classes that led to the election of Donald Trump. And of course, that danger is also possible in Singapore. But the advantage Singapore has and the reason why the People's Action Party is the longest elected party in the world today. Eh? No other party comes close to having been in office continuously after so many elections. And the reason, one reason for that is the weekly Meet the People sessions. And that's a tremendous discipline that the party imposes on all its members of parliament. And as a result of that, without fail, they meet very ordinary people who tell them face to face. The realities. You know, it's a real struggle for me to get an apartment. It's a real struggle for me to get a taxi license. It's a real struggle for me to pay for my children's school fees. It's a real struggle for me to, you know, find a job. And that explains, I think, in many ways, the extraordinary success of the PAP. But of course, at the same time, the PAP is also delivered tremendous results. I yes. mean, the standard of living of the Singapore people, including me, <laughs> has gone up in a spectacular fashion over the past 56 years of independence. Well, that's one of the things I would love to talk to you about is that mm. that is true. Over 56 years, we've yeah. had extraordinary success here in Singapore. So how do we maintain that? Because when you look at history, it's almost next to impossible for that level to be maintained. So how do we do it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's why the, the title of one of my books, which came out on the 50th anniversary of Singapore is Can Singapore Survive? <laughs> And unfortunately, the, that's one big lesson of history is that exceptional success doesn't carry on forever. It's almost humanly impossible. So at some point, you get a kind of a law of gravity <laughs> in politics that brings you down from the exceptional to the normal. And that's clearly going to be a challenge for Singapore. But fortunately for us, Singapore has been lucky. I mean, Singapore's success, of course, is due to its extraordinary leaders, especially the extraordinary three founding fathers, Lee Kuan Yew, Go King Sui, Raja Ratnam. But at the same time, we were also helped by favorable geopolitical winds. Mm. So, for example, in the Cold War, Singapore was on the side of the United States. And that was the right bet. <laughs> I mean, just imagine if we had been on the losing side, we would have been in deep trouble. And similarly, we are now helped by the fact that the center of gravity of the world's economy is shifting to Asia, especially to East Asia. That's why my family moved here. That's right. And because of that, I say that one competitive advantage Singapore will have in the 21st century is that if the natural capital of the 19th century, the European century, was London, and if the natural capital of the 20th century, which was the American century, was New York, the natural capital for the Asian century, the 21st century, will be Singapore. Because Singapore is the only city where all the four major civilizations operating in Asia uh, come together. Chinese civilization, Indian civilization, Islamic civilization, and also Western civilization. And what people don't know is that Singapore is the most westernized city in Asia today. I call it Asia light. <laughs> Before we proceed, let's take a quick break.
Did you have an aha moment when you knew you wanted to leave kind of public service behind and turn to academia? Was it when there was the founding of the Lee Kuan Yew School? What was it that led you there? Well, actually, to be honest with you, I would say it was due to pure luck. Luck comes to the (laughs) well-prepared. I'm a firm believer in that. It so happened that when Singapore left the Security Council at the end of 2002, in the following year, 2003, fortunately, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew turned 80. And when he turned 80, the Singapore government wanted to recognize his contributions to Singapore, which were enormous. And so they decided to name a school of public policy after him. And as you know, until then, Lee Kuan Yew had turned down all offers to have anything named after him because he said publicly, it's not a secret, that I've gone to many countries, the leaders named the bridges, the airports, the hospitals after them. And then when they died, their names are erased. He says, I don't want my name to be erased. But fortunately, when he turned 80, the Singapore government, the cabinet persuaded him that Lee Kuan Yew's biggest contribution to Singapore was in the area of good governance. Why not set up a school of governance or a school Mm. of public policy to be named after him? And reluctantly, he agreed. But then once he agreed, the challenge became to find a dean to be the first dean of Lee Kuan Yew School. And frankly, most Singaporeans didn't want that job. Because, you know, Lee Kuan Yew's standing and stature and reputation in Singapore is so high. And if you become the founding dean and the school fails, you, of course, end up in deep trouble. (laughs) And fortunately for me, since there was no queue of volunteers rushing to take the job, and when they offered it to me, I accepted it very quickly, partly because, as I said earlier on in your program, I always wanted to be in academia anyway. So it was a very natural fit for me to go into academia. And I, since I had spent a year in Harvard in 91, 92, I got to know someone, Professor Joseph Nye, who became the dean of the Harvard Kennedy School. And I saw that you can become a dean and also be a writer and a thinker. So I said, okay, all these roles I can play as a dean, so why not accept it? And so it was a great honor to be chosen as a founding dean. And the 13 years there were absolutely wonderful because we became... Within 10 years, the third best endowed school of public policy in the whole world after the Princeton Woodrow Wilson School and after the Harvard Kennedy School. So that's That's amazing amazing for a, a complete startup. You built the startup and it is doing extraordinarily well and you were able to live your passion, which is what you wanted to do from the beginning. Exactly. My 13 years as dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School were amazingly happy years. And so I was delighted that I could build a school and in many ways, hopefully strengthen the reputation of Mr. Lee Kuan Yew and his contributions to Singapore. So when you look back on your experience as a diplomat and an academia, what's the one piece of wisdom you can share with our listeners that you always kind of taught your students or reminded the students? Always question everything. <laughs> we teach our children Never, that. Never accept conventional wisdom. And to me, the one thing we haven't discussed is that the greatest joy in my life was that I ended up again by accident <laughs> doing philosophy in the National University of Singapore at a time when everyone in Singapore thought that philosophy was an impractical, useless subject, waste of time. But I actually ended up learning a lot of what I call analytical rigor and learning to question and challenge everything. And that became a huge asset, especially in multilateral diplomacy, because in multilateral diplomacy, 
uh, your capacity to argue clearly and cogently, like Ambassador Tomiko does, by the way, uh, is a huge asset. And so my training in philosophy was a true gift. And you received first class honors from NUS? Yeah, well, I was fortunate. I got a first class honors yes. in uh, philosophy. And, but I tell you, what was unusual about my um, first class honors, I was told by my philosophy professors, is that when my papers were sent to London for remarking, since most of the time when the papers go to London, the grades come down. In my case, when the papers went to London, the grades went up. So impressive. I was very happy with that compliment. <laughs> so I know you studied here. Your children went to America to study. The young people, the young generation today, where should they go for university education? Well, I would say, frankly, a lot depends on your inclinations and interests. And if you want to get a good liberal arts education, no question that American universities are still the best in the world. And so you should, I mean, if you can get into, see, two of my children went to Yale, one went to Carnegie Mellon, and they all had very good education, all three of them. So that will be the one place to go to. But if at the same time, if you believe, as I argue in my book, Has China Won, that China is going to become the number one economy in the world within 10 years, and if you want to network with the next generation of leaders in China, that's one reason for going to university too. Then I would say Peking University and Tsinghua University are already among the top universities in the world. And, you know, to get into Peking and Tsinghua is harder than getting into Harvard or Yale. Yes. <laughs> so the quality and caliber of students there is stunning. So you will be as challenged intellectually in Peking University in Tsinghua as you would be in Harvard or Yale or Columbia or Princeton. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about China, but a little later. First, I want to ask you if your parents were tiger parents, and do you mm. think we're pushing our kids too hard today? Well, I had the exact opposite page. I don't know whether you know this. <laughs> My father had lots of difficulties. He was orphaned at the age of one. He was brought up by his sisters, sent to a gangster-ridden, crime-ridden Singapore at the age of 13, fell into bad habits, began smoking, gambling, drinking, and led a very painful life. Actually, he ended up going to jail, by the way. <laughs> so I had a childhood of, I would say, real poverty. My parents separated when I was 13 years old and uh, I was put in a special feeding program when I was six years old because it's technically undernourished. So I came, I was brought up on the other side of the street, but I can tell you now, looking back, I feel like I was blessed with poverty <laughs> because what poverty teaches you if you survive it is that you become very strong and very resilient. And one of the key reasons why I have never suffered from personally from any setbacks was because every time I got a setback, I said, well, my mother went through hell and my mother never broke down. And she sometimes struggled to find money to feed us, by the way. She never broke down. And so if she never broke down, how the hell can I break down? So my mother gave me a huge gift, the gift of resilience. So in that sense, uh, I guess she was a tiger mom. <laughs> oh, that's an extraordinary story. And it makes me think about in the local school system, I mean, because Singapore is so well endowed and third largest foreign currency reserve in the world, but yet our children don't have air conditioning in school. Mm -hmm. And I feel like part of it is that mindset that we want to build resilience and we yeah. don't want them to grow up with too much luxury yes. so that they will appreciate and be able to have yeah. that 
Mindset. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to neighborhood schools, Saraya School. The school was so good, they shut it down after I left. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to Tanjong Gatong Technical School, which is a technical school, but I was thrown out of the technical school because I failed my metalwork exam. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so, goodness. Uh, I ended up in St. Andrew School, National University of Singapore. And I guess the biggest gift I've had in my life was that I had very, very good education. I always had good teachers and uh, the philosophy department in NUS was an amazing experience. Four years there right. transformed me completely. Yeah. Well, I always feel like for young people, education and travel mm. are the two things that broaden the mind the Absolutely. absolute most. Yeah. So tell me, what does success mean to you? Well, I think the important thing for me is having an impact on the world. I've been very lucky, okay, when you become an ambassador to the UN, when you become permanent secretary, when you become the founding dean, I have all the benefits of uh, that come with the stature of prestigious jobs, okay. So I've enjoyed that part of it and I don't want to deny that. But to me, the most satisfying thing is all the writing I have done and the impact that I've had on policies. And, I, you know, I published my first essay in the magazine Foreign Affairs, which is the most prestigious international relations publication in the world in 1983 when I was 34, 35 years old. And no other Singaporean had ever published an article in the magazine Foreign Affairs. And the Thai foreign minister was so happy. He wrote a thank you letter to the foreign minister of Singapore saying, thank you for the article that Kishore Mahmoudbani published on Cambodia because people now understand what is the fight we are doing at the United Nations. So something like that is very, very, very satisfying. Would you say that was when you first felt that you'd become a success? Well, that's when I first realized that I could write and publish in the leading journals in the world. And so I had then subsequently I kept on publishing articles in the National Interest, in Foreign Policy Magazine, in Washington Quarterly, in Survival. And so I, I think I've published articles in most of the leading places in the world, including New York Times, Financial Times, uh, Economist. <laughs> More inspiring words after the quick break. So could you share with our listeners habits that help you fuel your success? Well, I think the most important habit that I acquired in my life was one that I acquired by accident. Because, uh, you know, I told you I came from a very poor childhood and there were no books in the house, of course, you know. <laughs> if you don't, have, you don't have enough food, you don't have money for books. But uh, by chance, a childhood friend of mine, Jeffrey Sung, with whom I co-authored my book, The ASEAN Miracle, would we live within 100 yards of each other. And he and I discovered the Juchat Public Library, which was about a kilometer away from our house, 10 to 15 minutes walking distance. And I used to go there every week and borrow four or five books each week, novels, nonfiction, and read them voraciously. And I think it was my reading that Jeffrey Sung and I did together at Juchat Public Library that transform my life. And so if I hadn't discovered Juchat Public Library, I would never have become a president scholar. I wouldn't have ended up as ambassador to the UN or as a founding dean. So it was an accident in my childhood 
that that to my success, I guess. The unfortunate thing is young people today are all on screens, so I'm not sure they're reading. That's a tragedy because there's no substitute for reading books because, you know, you can read all the articles you want, but a book at the end of the day gives a much larger, all-rounded argument from beginning to end. And you have to understand the big picture arguments and you can only get that from reading books. And if we fail in Singapore to nudge our young people into reading books, then we will pay a serious long-term price for that. Speaking of reading, when we read the news today, there is coverage of division and strife and racism around the world. But when Jim and I traveled around the world to 116 countries over three years, I came home with a renewed faith in humankind because mm. people everywhere were good. So do you feel that the divisions that we hear and read about are overrepresented to sell news? And are you worried about the racial divides and then specifically here in Singapore? Yeah, I think we should definitely be concerned about incidents of racism that have taken place in Singapore. And, you know, as I mentioned since we came from a poor family, I ended up in university accidentally, but none of my three sisters went to university. And when they tried to get jobs in Singapore, they would have difficulties because they would say, you don't speak Mandarin. And so they, certainly my, some of my sisters have had challenges in, in Singapore. But I must say that in my case, I had the opposite. I actually experienced what I call reverse racism. And so my Chinese friends have helped me enormously all through my life. And I give you a simple example. Even after I started work when I was earning $900 a month, I would have sometimes, I would give my mother $800 and I would be left with $100 a month to live on. And I would sometimes run short of money. So one day I was in the bus, standing up in the bus next to a colleague of mine in MFA, Chinese guy, Mark Hong was his name, another president scholar. He said, Mark, you know, I'm very challenging and you know, I need some money. I can't find it. He said, okay, no problem. I'll give you. <laughs> so <laughs> he went to the office and he wrote a check for $2,000. I mean, it was a loan. I paid him back. But it was amazing, just like that. What year was this? Must have been the early 1970s. And $2,000 was a lot of money. Yeah. More than double my monthly salary. So, uh, so that was the kind of generosity I would get constantly from my uh, Chinese friends. So... Ironically, so I mentioned my best friend, Charu Tran, Jeffrey Sung, was Chinese. The best man at our wedding, Jeffrey Yu, is a Chinese. So, you know, so I've had the, in some ways, I've, I've experienced what I call the, the reverse of racism. <laughs> I'd like to think that that's still the case, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So I've just finished your book, Has China Won? And it's really fantastic. Uh. Listeners, it's easy to understand, but it's really packed with great insights. And on my Instagram, I mentioned our interview together. And one of my followers, Lim Mui Kim, said, she has this question for you. She says, Professor, why can't the U.S. and China coexist as friendly competitors? Can you make it easy for all of us to understand? That's precisely, I mean, your question actually, in a sense, understood the spirit of my book very, very clearly. The goal of the book is to persuade the United States and China that while I try to explain analytically on the basis of historical evidence why the geopolitical contest will actually gain momentum in the next 10, 20 years, at the same time in my concluding chapter, I spent a devote an entire chapter explaining why it'd be wiser for the United States and China to press the pause button 
on the uh, geopolitical contests and actually find ways and means but that's quite unlikely. working together. My arguments are unlikely to succeed, but I'm nonetheless going to try. <laughs> I think you present the U.S. as pretty inflexible and ideological and mm. China's more pragmatic and adaptable. I mean, I wonder if it's really that clear cut. China has gone through hell. I mean, that's, that simple statement, I think most Americans don't know. I mean, the century of humiliation from 1842 to 1949, which is, by the way, quite recent, it was probably the most painful chapter in China's history. One of the most painful chapters over 4,000 years of Chinese history. And the Chinese goal, therefore, is to ensure that they're never humiliated again. And if you feel under threat, then you are very tight, disciplined, careful, pragmatic. And that's how the Chinese have been behaving. And the United States, on the other hand, as I explained in the, in the MOOC course, I produce a massive open online course, MOOC course in US-China relations. And you can watch the 24 videos for free. Uh, where I say that in contrast to the century of humiliation that China suffered, United States has experienced a century of triumphalism. And United States has got used to succeeding. And so, you know, in my latest article, The National Interest, which came out in the middle of 2021, I argue that in many ways, the United States should consider the possibility that for the first time in 130 years, it's going to become the number two power, no longer be the number one power. And so it's a pity. And I actually want America to succeed. I mean, I'm a friend of the United States. I want the United States to do well. But if the United States doesn't reverse course, then I fear that it will have a major problem in the next 10, 20 years. I agree. But I think until China allows the renminbi to mm. be convertible, mm that's not going to happen because everything is done with the U.S. dollar around the world, correct? You, I mean, you say that in your book. Yeah, absolutely right. And there is, history teaches us that even after United States overtook the United Kingdom to become the number one economy around 1890 or so, the English pound sterling remained the global reserve currency for a couple of decades. So there's no question whatsoever that even if in the next 10 years, China's GNP become bigger than that of the United States, the US dollar will continue to remain the global reserve currency for 10 to 20 years. By the same time, I do have a word of warning in my book that it's unwise for the United States to weaponize the US dollar because it is now creating incentives from many countries around the world to look for alternatives. And nowadays with blockchain technology, it's possible for China or other countries to create currencies that will be independent and that can therefore replace many of the roles played by the US dollar. Do you own any cryptocurrency? I only have two Bitcoins and I lost money on both. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I think you just sit on that. <laughs> you just sit on that. So do you think that the virtual world has become an, a normal for the next generation? I mean, with cryptocurrencies and the virtual lands where we can buy virtual land and we can display our virtual art, the NFTs, I think that's coming. Well, I hope that my children will not listen to this uh, podcast because whenever they hear me speak about digital stuff or technology stuff, they look at me and say, Dad, you know nothing about the subject. Please shut up. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's what coming, my children right? said to me. So, But I, I do think, yes, it's a world I don't understand. Let me be very honest about it. I don't understand the great leaps forward taking place in uh, artificial intelligence. I don't understand the great leaps forward taking place in quantum computing. I don't understand the great leaps forward taking place in blockchain technology. But I do know that they are going to transform the world. And our lives are going to be very much changed. And I experienced this actually when I was in China. When I was doing research for my book, Has China Won? I spent two months at Fudan University. And when I went to buy my research assistant a farewell lunch uh, in a Mongolian hot pot restaurant, I said, what do I do? He says, take out your China phone. I took out my China phone. I scanned the QR code on the table, picked two dishes, two drinks, press accept, so I said, okay, let me see how long, how long do I have to wait for the Mongolian hot pot lunch to come after doing everything on my phone. I thought maybe 20 minutes, half an hour. The meal arrived within three minutes. And you had to pay. And, and I didn't have to pay. Everything was done by the phone. Yeah, that's the thing is they don't even take cash anymore. Yeah, they don't Jim and I were there and ordered two, you know, two coffees and we didn't have digital currency. So yeah. there we were. You're, you're stranded. Yeah. yeah. So, and even the ladies selling flowers on the streets don't accept cash. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. China is actually in the area of digital currency and mobile payments. China is way ahead of the world. Don't go yet. Pass the Power will continue after the break. So Kishore, hindsight is twenty twenty. Hmm. What do you wish you'd known when you started your career? Well, actually, it's not so much what I wish I knew when I started my career. It's what I wish I knew when I was going through life. And but the biggest regret in my life was that I became a father when I was rising up very fast in my career. And so I didn't spend as much time with my children as I should have. If I had to replay my life, I would go back 30 years and spend more time with my children. And that was the biggest mistake I made in my life. The takeaway, listeners, is to spend more time with your children. Yes, and my advice to every young parent I meet is spend time with them because before you know it, within a decade or two, they're gone. And the most precious years, you know, zero to 18, <laughs> and then they're gone. So professionally, looking back, is there something you failed at or you would change? Professionally, I, to be honest with you, I, I've succeeded way beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, I absolutely know, I never dreamt that I would become an ambassador or a permanent secretary or a founding dean. I mean, I was supposed to work as a textile salesman. That was supposed to be my destiny. And uh, in fact, all my first cousins actually ended up all Cindy's all ended up in business, you know, and uh, none went to government and none went to academia. So in terms of where Cindy should have been, uh, I guess I am a complete deviant. <laughs> is there a question you wish that I'd asked? I guess if one question I could have asked is, uh, who's the historical figure I admire the most? Please tell us. And I would say it's Socrates. Because, I mean, the, when I look back now and I realize his ability to ask challenging questions, what, 2,400 years ago? Am I correct? I'm not sure. It's amazing. And what the world needs today are more Socrates-type figures. And ironically, even a society like United States, which is the most open society in the world, 
there isn't enough questioning taking place. There's still a lot of groupthink that is happening. And so what the world needs today is more figures like Socrates to emerge. Well, let me follow up on that and ask you, don't you think part of that, though, is because with technology, we have become so busy and the luxury of time to actually think and question isn't really there. I mean, people are just consumed with doing, being, getting, going, and to stop and think. How often do people do that anymore? Yeah. And I must confess that I myself personally have also become a victim of that. I think I spend more time on my WhatsApp than I spend on reading books. So it's a real challenge to try and reduce my time on WhatsApp and to spend more time reading books. And I completely agree with you, but I I cannot claim to be a role model in having succeeded there. <laughs> it's something we really have to be disciplined over, right? Yes. Or it will consume us. Absolutely. Yeah. So th- we're just going to wrap up with some quick fire questions. So sure. you just kind of let me know quickly. A trend you'd like to end? Well, this is a shocking answer for you. The intellectual arrogance of the New York Times. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay, your favorite comfort food? My mother's cooking Chapatis, dal, kima, bindi. <laughs> Currently reading? Currently reading Wang Gangwu's memoir, Home is Where We Are. And you recommend it? Oh, of course, very much so. And, and I'm still just started it. And when he describes his early years in the Bukit Timah campus, and he studied there in the 1950s, early 1950s, I joined the campus 18 years later. And what he described, of the Bukit Timah campus and the multiracial solidarity and harmony on the campus is exactly what I experienced in the Bukit Timah campus. MBS, Gardens by the Bay, Jewel, or Botanic Gardens? Uh, Gardens by the Bay. Why? Well, you know something, uh, if most people assume that the Singapore government is so money-minded and if there is very precious reclaimed land, it would park expensive condos there and get the most value out of the land. But to take such expensive reclaimed land and make it into one of the most beautiful gardens in the world is an enormous gift by the people of Singapore to the world. Mm. And I'm glad that a Financial Times writer who visited Gardens, by the way, said, and this is, of course, of course, a result of that brilliant guy, Tan Wee Kep, who played a major role in building Gardens, by the way, that it is a remarkable gift to the world. It should be declared one of the wonders of the world. Yeah, it's such a wonderful answer because you're not saying it because it's a place you enjoy, you think it's beautiful, but you see it as a gift from Singapore to the people. I love that answer. Yeah. If you could be a superhero, what power would you have? I would say the the power to question like Socrates. <laughs> Your favorite drink and with whom would you share it? My favorite drink, you know, as I told you, my dad was very, had a rough life. He could only afford to drink Johnny Walker Red Label. And when I could afford to drink Johnny Walker Black Label, <laughs> <laughs> it was a real luxury and I still enjoy it with soda. Yeah. And with whom would you share it? I would sit down with my wife. <laughs> Anne, sweet Anne. Kishore, do you have parting words to pass the power on to our listeners? 
Well, my final message, especially to my fellow Singaporeans, is to tell them that they should really appreciate the fact that Singapore is, is in one of the most beautiful regions of planet Earth, Southeast Asia, because Southeast Asia is by far the most diverse region on planet Earth in terms of history, culture, religion, everything, you know. So out of 650 million people, you have 250 million Christians, 250 million Muslims, 150 million Christians, 150 million Buddhists, and Mahayana Buddhists, and Hinayana Buddhists, and Taoists, and Confucianists, and Hindus, and Communists, and they all live in peace. And it's all due to this uh, miracle called ASEAN, which is the second most successful regional organization in the world. And that's why Jeffrey Sung and I wrote the book, The ASEAN Miracle. And I wish that Singaporeans would learn to cherish both Southeast Asia and ASEAN because we are truly blessed to be living in one of the most peaceful and prosperous corners of the world. Well said. And Kishore, I did not know how you grew up as a child. And I think for the listeners, you are just kind of a prime example of someone who has really worked hard. You say luck played a big part in your life, but I know it's been the hard work and the dedication and maybe you were in the right place at the right time a few times, but it's been you who have crafted this extraordinary life. So thank you for being here and sharing and empowering and inspiring our listeners. Thank you, Kishore. Thank you. Thank you for having me. for listening, please write to me on Instagram with your top takeaway from today. Since I'm still new at this, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or click the follow button on Spotify. Share my podcast on your Instagram stories and please tag me at I am Paige Parker. Always know I'm eager to hear from you on guest ideas and questions for upcoming guests. If you're new to the show, be sure to listen to the previous episodes to hear from more thought leaders. Again, thank you for listening and come back next week for another episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. Together, we got this.